Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran, a ministry of Worship Generation Church in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. But as we come to 1 Kings tonight, David is still alive. He's on the very final chapter of his life. He'll step into eternity at the age of 70. But from the context, when it introduces him in the first verse of this book, it says that he was old, advanced in years, that the words there implied in the original imply that he's frail. He's physically very frail. So we know some people at 70 are very strong and maybe uh, just a little bit healthier than other people at 70. But in this case, and even 80 or 90 for that matter, but at this case, the, in the original Hebrew, Pastor Chuck brought this up in his teachings, that it implies that he is physically frail. But we'll see tonight in the text, he's still alert when he needs to be. And there's a, we've talked about this last week with David coming to the end of his life. There is an end, and if we live long enough, there'll be a day when we are old and advanced in years, and we can only hope and pray that... Uh, like we're being here tonight with Jesus, that we'll make good decisions on the journey. So we're just the best version of who we can be in faith with Jesus at that time in our life. Even today, I dropped off for my dad in assisted living, toothpaste and some other items that he needed, shampoo and, and being in his room. And just, you know, he was in the food, he was in the dining room when I got there. And I put everything in his room and I, I just thought, this is my dad's little place. And then they brought him up and I got to see him and everything. I just thought, you know, it's a reminder, even on this text today, seeing my dad at 92 in his little world and he, people that love him and take care of him. And I don't know, when I talked about this on Tuesday night, I went into detail, but I won't do that tonight. But just you need to know David is old and frail, physically frail. And yet the most important thing he has to do in his life, it's arguably the most important thing to do in his entire life, he's got to do in this chapter tonight, chapter one. So as he's frail and vulnerable, he can't get warm. It's a circulation thing, which... We're familiar with what happens when you can get older. He can't get warm, so they bring the Shunammite. They look for a, a young virgin woman, to, virgin woman to lay with him to keep him warm, to keep his body warm like body heat. And they find Abishag, uh, the Shunammite. And so she takes care of him. He's not involved with her like, uh, you know, intimately. But she takes good care of him like a daughter would or something of that nature. It's, it's like a little hybrid, but it's a beautiful thing. And she takes care of him. And, but he's weak. And anyone that's aspiring for power, when they see weakness in leadership, they can connive and conspire and scheme. And this is what's going on behind the scenes. So in the background of this, Adonijah, the full brother of Absalom. Now remember, David had many wives, at least about half a dozen of them, and they had children. But the wife that he had that was the mother of Absalom, who, of course, was struck down by Joab and led the rebellion and the treason against David some couple decades before, she had two children. She's a Canaanite. So David multiplied wives, which he shouldn't have done, and he multiplied a wife with a Canaanite, which he was even more what he shouldn't have done because they're supposed to be out of the land or eradicated from the land because they would bring you down. And he got involved intimately with this woman, made her a wife, and she gave him Absalom and Adonijah. And both of these guys are super good looking. They're charismatic and they're ambitious. So Absalom died, but his younger brother Adonijah comes on the scene. And Adonijah does the same thing. He gets the chariot, gets people running before him, saying, like, all hail Adonijah. 
and he's aspiring to become the king. He sees the weakness of his father, and so he organizes a gathering of all the other sons, minus Solomon, most of his dad's inner court, led by Joab, the general who was over the army, and he gathers them to proclaim that he's going to be the king. And this is the background. This is the background to the story. And in so doing, when you have kingdoms like this, and human history shows this, when there's multiple princes, or princesses for that matter, and there's contention for the power, and it's not clear who's going to ascend, so often it's a power struggle politically, economically, militarily, and whoever wins it comes to power, and they usually banish or execute the other people because they represent a threat. So, for example, in Russian history, there was one prince who had survived a slaughter of princes during the reign of the Romanovs, which, of course, is about a 400-year reign from Ivan the Terrible in the 1600s. But this one prince was put away in a castle in a place off the grid, and no one even really knew he existed. He was the hidden prince. And that prince was like a chess piece that represented leverage for aspiring men and women to bring forth under a monarchy to say, this is a contender for the throne of the current throne of Russia. And this is very common. This happened all over Europe and in the Asian dynasties as well for thousands of years in human nature. And remember, historically, the planet as a whole has been governed by kings and queens for 5,000 plus years. The democracies and socialism and communism, these models of government are very recent to the human race. If you study most histories, all cultures, Asiatic as well, it's kings and queens. And so this is really common. So in this case, this is important. Solomon and Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, because we're going to come into the text, their lives would be threatened. If Adonijah becomes king, they're a direct threat to Adonijah's reign, and so he's going to, he could banish them, he could execute them, but he will certainly dethrone Bathsheba, the queen mother, and the primary wife, the true wife of David. This is our background. One more piece of information that's very insightful to this text tonight. When Solomon was born, it was after the first child died. If you recall when David and Bathsheba committed adultery, it was on David, not Bathsheba, that they had the child. And that child died. It was born, it lived seven days, and David fasted and prayed for the child and interceded for the child. And the child died. And David was brokenhearted, and that's when he said, I can't bring the child back, but I'll go to him. So he broke the fast after the child died. But then we're told immediately after that in chapter 12, the chapter of chastening and consequences with the Lord for King David, in the prime of his reign, the Lord gives him Solomon. And we're told that the Lord, it says, the Holy Spirit tells us, the Lord loved Solomon. And the Lord was merciful to David and Bathsheba. And after their broken hearts over the child of adultery was taken by the Lord, he gave them Solomon. And he's called beloved of the Lord because the Lord loved Solomon. The Lord chose Solomon. When he was born, God spoke through some means or another, either directly to David or through the prophets like Gad or Nathan, and said, Solomon, I love. This is my grace to you. It's a really great example, like Romans 5 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And in that background, Solomon was born, and he's the gift of grace and mercy to David and Bathsheba after the heartache of the adultery, the death of Uriah, and the death of the son. That's very important to our background tonight. Because now Solomon's a man, and he's a prince, and he's the beloved of the Lord as called by the Lord. Which is interesting because Adonijah means 
love the, to love, I love the Lord Jehovah. His name literally means to love the Lord Jehovah. So when he was born to the Canaanite woman, David gave him this name, or maybe the Canaanite mom gave him this name, but the Canaanite mom, there's no reason to believe that she served the Lord or worshiped Jehovah. So this is very interesting because our key players in the text on Tuesday in the verse by verse and tonight topically are Adonijah and Solomon, but really tonight more focus again on David. But one of these guys is going to be the king. One is exalting himself, the text said that, and the other is being one exalts himself with a name that says he should love the Lord Jehovah, but does anything other than what would look like someone who serves the Lord Jehovah. The other has wisdom to be revealed. Even before he asks for wisdom, his wisdom is acknowledged in the latter part of this chapter. We see it and in the next chapter before chapter three, where he has the vision where he asks God for wisdom. David mentions his wisdom twice in chapter 2. You use your wisdom that God's given you. It was very clear that Solomon was not only the beloved of the Lord, but very capable to be the king. It's quite obvious, contextually in the first couple of chapters. But it's ironic. Adonijah means, I will love the Lord God Jehovah, but he didn't. And Solomon means beloved of the Lord. One is, it's like David gave the one son the name, hoping he'll be that guy that will serve the Lord and love the Lord. Adonijah, the son of the Canaanite, Canaanitess, but that's just because you call the flesh a spiritual name doesn't mean it's going to be spiritual. But God was gracious and gave Solomon and said he's beloved of the Lord, and that's from the Lord. What a contrast. There's more to it when you really think about it. If you wake up at 3 in the morning like, Hey, think about those two things and how they represent so much if you really go deeper in your thought process on it. So that's the background. And as we pick it up verse by verse right now for topical, we're going to pick it up in verse 15 because God had a plan with Solomon for a better future, a better tomorrow. And I think it's a very important topic for all of us on planet Earth in late August 2022 because it's doom and gloom with the mainstream media, alternative media, and pretty much everywhere you look, it's doom and gloom. The sky is falling. But when Solomon came to power, and he comes to power in this chapter. It's all moving toward a better tomorrow, a better future. And I believe through faith in Jesus Christ, as a church of Jesus Christ, our best day is always today. And there's a better one in front of us tomorrow. Because that's faith. And the arm of the Lord is not short. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think that's very important, especially for us to think about when we look at young people. And I say this quite often. So our theme tonight is a better tomorrow, but we got to get there. we got to get to the future, and it's, it's going on right now. So verse 15. So the news came to Bathsheba what was going on, and so Bathsheba went into the chamber of the king based on counsel she received from Nathan the prophet. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was serving the king. And Bathsheba bowed down and did homage to the king, and the king said, What is your wish? And then she, that is Bathsheba, said to him, My lord, you swore by the Lord your God, to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne. So now look, Adonijah has become king. And now, my lord, the king, you do not know about it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance. And he's invited all the sons of the king, Abathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And as for you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are on you that you should tell them who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will happen when my lord the king rests with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. And just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. So they told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. 
And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my Lord, O king, you have said, have you said Adonijah, Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and all the commanders of the army and Abathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live King Adonijah. But he has not invited me, your servant, nor Zadok the priest, nor Benaiah the son of Jehoiadiah, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king, and you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So when Nathan heard about what was going on with Adonijah and all these key people, he came to Bathsheba and said, look, your life is on the line and your son. We need to come up with a plan. The plan is you go in first and say this, and I'll come in after that, which is what we just read. This Bathsheba, we have her speaking in 2 Samuel saying to David, I'm with child. Remember that? Wow, that's, I mean, that was like, that's a heavy, for, I mean, he slept with Uriah's wife. Try to get Uriah to sleep with her so he would think the child was his after that. But he thought he got away with something, and she sent him the note, I'm with child. That's what we get from Bathsheba in the Bible. I'm with child under very un- unpleasant circumstances. Adultery. And now we have her speaking again. So that's the flower of her youth, and now this is the end of her life, the latter part of her life. She's the queen mom, queen mother. And her son has been promised to be the king by David. If you, I draw your attention where she said in verse 17, my Lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your maidservant, that's her, surely Solomon, your son, shall reign after me and he shall sit on the throne. This is a very important verse. This kind of puts in motion a lot of this chapter because she is holding David accountable for his words and for all the shortcomings of David that we've seen in First and Second Samuel, we've never really seen him not keep his word. Keeping our word and the integrity of our word is the single most important attribute you can have in your life. And I know I say, like, forgiveness is the greatest attribute. Suffering with the Lord is a great attribute. Purity is a chosen great attribute with the Lord. These are great equities in the spiritual kingdom. But the integrity of our word is so crucial and so critical for our life, in marriage for 50 years, as a parent with consistency for our children. How about with being grandparents, consistency with the grandkids? I mean, I know if I promise Clementine or Zippy or Velzy or Wilkie something, hey, whatever it takes. I mean, I got to sell something. I got to go Craigslist, whatever it takes. We got to come through with this. From here to eternity, I can guarantee one of the highest objectives I have is always follow through with the grandkids with what I say I'm going to do for them. Right? That's, that's a given. And of course, those with grandkids understand how significant that is. And those with children and maybe young adult children, you understand how important that is. Because by the time he's a man or she's a woman, you realize they lived in a house with you for 18 plus years. And when they go away to college or they get married or do this and they wake up and they live the life they're going to live as adults without you there with that influence, they're going to remember, was your yes, yes, and was your no, no? Were you consistent or was it yes and no? Because we know with the Father of lights, there's no shadow of turning. And in Jesus Christ, all the promises are what? Yes and amen. We know that. 
So it's super important, obviously. That's why in the New Testament, it's reaffirmed. Hey, don't swear on the, Jesus said, don't swear on the gold of the temple. Don't swear on the altar. Just say what it is. That's enough. Your word should be enough. Hmm. Then James says in the first epistle written chronologically in the timeline of the early church, listen, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything other than that is just of sin and of the flesh. The most basic foundation of the Christian, someone saying they're a disciple of Jesus Christ, is that we keep our word. Now, occasionally something happens where you can't. Like, say you promise to be somewhere, and then you get COVID, and you're so sick, you don't even remember you promised it, right? Things like that can happen, right? I mean, you're gonna, I'm going to meet you there, and then someone steals your car. Like, things like that, or they're a catechotic converter. Things like that happen. But really, the pattern of our self-determination in life, if we're confessing Christ as our Lord and Savior, the moment we say that Christ has come in, that we've received Christ, that if we're a new creation, even if, I mean, the world appreciates secular people who keep their word. They should. But how much more so the disciple of Jesus Christ? We need to, in a world where the lying and corruption and deceit is just always prevalent and affecting a lot of people, we need to be consistent with the integrity of our word. And David was consistent with the integrity of his word. Now, maybe you can see me afterwards and say, hey, I just thought of something where David did not keep his word up. It doesn't come to me right away. And as we've gone through all this, it doesn't jump out at me. As I just look at David's life, obviously he was deceitful with Uriah, but he's held accountable for that. But he, he, he did what he needed to do. And he trusted the Lord to bring things about. And the people we admire and aspire to in the Bible, women and men, there are women and men who keep their word. They're consistent with their word. People that we look up to, if we study church history, we, we, look, we look to those and admire those who keep their word. And people that we've looked up to in our own lives that have impacted us favorably, ideally in Jesus' name, people that we look up to over us, They've kept their word. They've been true to their word. Once you lose that credibility, you really lose something. And if you lose it with your employees, you've lost it. If you lose it with your spouse, you've lost it. If you lose it with your children, you've lost it. If you lose it in the ministry, you've lost it. It is so important to keep your word. And here, in a time when David is old, and advanced in years, and physically frail. Bathsheba comes into him and says, reminds him, you swore by the Lord, you swore by the Lord, saying, Solomon shall reign after me and sit on the throne. She takes him back to the promise he made and says, you swore. And that's all she's holding him to. She's holding him to like, you said you would do this. She's reminding him. And she says, because it's so urgent, it's such a sensitive thing, it's such a critical thing that's at, uh, in play here, is that it's very time sensitive. We'll see that in just a moment when we talk about his action. But he made a promise. I couldn't help but think of the Lord of the Rings when Samwise Gumshi says, a promise is a promise. When he starts to go in the water, right? You know, like he's not going to leave Frodo. A promise is a promise. You know, Samwise Gumshi. And I thought, you know, like, yeah, even J.R. Tolkien gets it. A promise is a promise. And we need to keep our word. It's so important. And where you've not kept your word, I would say in Jesus' name, try and correct it and do what you can. 
It's just so critical. Maybe you're like me, we're a little more old school on this, but one of the things that has, in the last 10, 20 years that has really bothered me with coaches in the professional world and collegiate world is where they sign contracts to be a coach, a five-year contract, and then they break the contract because you see USC came calling or Texas or some other university. And they have escape clauses in their contracts. They all do now. But I just go back to John Wooden, the great basketball coach from UCLA. And I've told this story because it has impacted me for the last 15, 20 years when he became a, a, someone I respected in their leadership. But John Wooden was the coach of Indiana State basketball a long time ago. And he grew up on a farm where his parents lost the farm during the Depression. And his dad lost the farm, worked hard, bought another farm, and cleared all of his debt. His dad was a man of integrity. John Wooden, is considered the greatest coach of all time, was a man of integrity. And he was offered a job coaching Minnesota basketball in the Big Ten. And that's, an, you know, going from the Indiana State Sycamores to the Big Ten was a big step up. And that was his dream job because he's a professor. He's a professor. He's a teacher. So you taught and then you coach. The two went together. And the, the dream job was Minnesota Gophers, Big Ten. He's a Midwest guy. But he had a backup offer from UCLA. It was not an appealing job at the time. This is early 50s. Come out here, live in Brentwood, coach the Bruins. It was the second job. It's not the one he wanted. And he told UCLA that he would let them know at 7 p.m. whether or not he would accept their offer. And Minnesota basketball was supposed to call him at 6 p.m. to offer him. He was going to get the job. They need to let him know by 6 p.m. on this one night. Well, there was a blizzard in the Midwest that night, and the, all the phone lines were down or in that area. So John Wooden did not get the call from the Minnesota Golden Gophers at 6 p.m. that night, and he called UCLA basketball at 7 p.m. that same night, central time, and said he would accept the job. At 8 p.m., Minnesota called and said, we're giving you the job. And he said, I already took the UCLA job. And he never looked back. And the rest is his life history not to mention 10 NCAA titles and his influence on people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton, Gail Goodrich, the rest of them, Sidney Wicks, all. I mean, you go to any bookstore in America and find John Wooden books. You go online and Google John Wooden books on leadership. Today, even to this day, the highest award you can win in college basketball is a John Wooden Award because it deals with the integrity of who the man was. That's... That has inspired me so much as an Olympic coach in the past and as a pastor presently, which is what I've been for 34 years. She says, you need to keep your word. And it's like when the mom says to the dad, you know, the eyes of all the children are on you. Uh, Hey, the grandchildren are watching you, Grandpa. Or the Starbucks employees, they're watching you. The Disney employees are watching you. The plumbing employees, they're watching you. They're watching you right now. All the eyes of the rocket People that help you build the rocket, they're watching you, Mr. Rocket Builder. They're all on you right now. Are you going to keep your word? David was a man after God's own heart, and his wife came in and said, you need to keep your word. You promised this. And everyone's watching you. Do you realize, had David, there's a vacuum in leadership as he's laying in this bed, cold. And the whole nation's waiting to see what's going to happen. And Adonijah says, I'm your future king. 
But evidently, many people knew that Solomon was a future king based upon what David promised. Like, hey, you know, in the castle, they say David promised it to Solomon. Well, then what's Adonijah doing out here with all these other guys, huh? It's going to be a civil war again. We just barely recovered from the Absalom thing 15 years ago, right? And ladies, I was telling, I think I was talking to Brad, I was Sam, I forget, it might have been Scott Cunningham Tuesday night. I got, you know, aren't you glad when your wife comes and you're like, hey, all the eyes are on you? You know, husbands need wives that go like, hey, you know what? The eyes, of, the eyes are on you. That's a strong exhortation. And ladies, don't be afraid to say it to your husbands. Even though he's the king and you're the queen, like, hey, you just go in there and tell it the way it is. Hey, listen, what are you going to do? Because people are watching you. It's good to have a wife hold you accountable to be true to your word. A better tomorrow is always going to begin when men and women remember the promises they've made and they keep them. That day for the future. And when they step into eternity, everyone they leave behind can say they kept their word. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our church YouTube channel. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. For more information about Pastor Joey personally, you can follow him on his Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and God bless.